Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm Brady Huggett. Our guest today is Una Ryan, formerly president and CEO of Diagnostics for All, and also formerly president and CEO of Avant Immunotherapeutics. She was a big influence on the Boston biotech scene early in her career, but she's relocated to the West Coast now, to San Francisco, where she's an active angel investor. Our conversation touched on women in biotechnology, the benefits and drawbacks of running a nonprofit, and how leaving academia for industry meant she was able to complete the equation, as she put it. We also discussed her childhood and how it's the unfortunate things in life that help mold you into the person you're going to become. Here it is, our First Rounders podcast with Una Ryan. You know, I just, I just had uh, Bill Hazeltine in here. Oh, I didn't realize. A couple yes, days you've ago. You've had some characters. So. Yeah, he was saying that... Um, you bought a couple of his companies? Is that right? I may well have done, yes. I've certainly um, bought and, well, not sold, bought several. I believe in growth by acquisition. Yeah. And it's uh, a good way for growing quickly. Was Celdex maybe one of them? Yes. Does that sound right? I'd forgotten it was one of his. Yeah. Well, that was something that um, Avant merged into. Yeah, correct? yes, yeah. that's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. But so yep. um, you're on the West Coast now. Absolutely. Yeah. You think expansively out there. I think you think big out west. Is that happening to you? Oh, yes. Yes. Given that you spent so much time in, in Boston, which is another big biotech hub, yeah, those are the two biggest in the country, what, what are the similarities or differences that you see having lived on both coasts? Um, a lot. I mean, I was very instrumental in, in building the biotech hub in Boston as um, chairman of what was MassBio and is was, was MBC and is now MassBio, and Henry had really got things off the ground before. Um, yes, both very Tremere, focused. Henry yes. Tremere, yeah. Both very proud. Um, both think they are first to do everything, but I do actually the things we were talking about. I do see as different. Um, everything in Boston is small, close, and convenient. So if you're in Cambridge or Boston and you want to go and lobby or testify, you just have to walk up the hill to the state house. Um, 
California, that's impossible. I mean, you, you know, you don't just run up the hill to Sacramento or you mm -hmm. get on a plane or drive. So I think uh, people tend to look more to the federal government than local government. And But I feel... You um, mean in San Francisco? Yes, yeah. in, in California. Um, I do think there's something to the fact that the West is all about space and size, whereas Boston is much more about detail. And my desk, I used to look out and think how beautiful the tree was and the birds on it. And now I look at this vast expanse from the ocean to um, the middle of the city. And I don't think it's any accident that the biggest life sciences companies and the biggest high-tech companies are actually on the West Coast. I'm not saying bigger is better. I just think people think very broadly and expansively, and I'm finding it fun. You're doing angel investing now. Well, it seemed um, quite a natural um, evolution for me. I spent, I've moved from academia through public company, private company, nonprofit, mm -hmm. and always I tried to find, turn our science, the brilliant science you do anywhere and not restricted to one coast or the other, um, into meaningful products that would be life-changing or really life-saving or in some ways significant. And... Um, had concentrated a lot on the developing world in the last three companies. And this time, I'm still trying to do things that matter. But I thought, you know, I've had my go at it. And maybe if I can help a lot of other women or people get started, they can bring a lot more of these really important discoveries. So what are you, what are you seeing? So I'm now an angel investor. No, no, I'm sorry. What are you seeing? Oh, what am I yeah. seeing? More um, high-tech. Um, but I think that's happening. I think um, biotech and high-tech are fusing much more than we thought when it was just sort of informatics and biotechnology. Um, but I'm seeing some really interesting Synbio companies, you mm -hmm. know, so I think that's a very exciting field, um, and I'm anxious to get into it. I'm pretty much um, exclusively in the life sciences, but I do have a chocolate company and a media company <laughs> <laughs> but no I, I've about a dozen um, life sciences startups do you want to plug the chocolate company because I'm, I think I'm interested in that information well it's called Sweet Riot and mm -hmm. it's here in New York but yes <laughs> chocolate is just good are you hooking into syndicates on, on the west coast oh yes I belong to three actually Two are focused on women-owned or women-founded companies. That's Golden Seeds mm -hmm. and Astia Angel, which is a new angel group. And then, because men have good ideas too, mm -hmm. <laughs> I've um, just joined the Angel Forum, which is fairly high-powered look at um, a range of companies. So let's 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 talk about um, females in biotech. There aren't many, right? It's a complaint. It's a criticism. Uh, do you feel like there's some sort of door that needs to be opened or there just maybe isn't the interest or, or what's been the issue over the past 20, 25 years? No, I just think it's tough. I think that um, I was fortunate. My children were pretty much grown up, I think, before I was a CEO. I mean, they weren't out of the house, uh -huh. but they weren't toddlers. I think it's very tough. Um, being a CEO, I'm sure, anywhere is very tough. But I think in some of the 
uh, high-tech companies, you can do things from home or from your lab. Um, I think biotech often involves looking at cell cultures and watching animals and um, walk, literally walking the halls of the laboratories. So I think it's a very uh, demanding job, and um, especially in the public companies. But that, that doesn't seem to make sense. It's a demanding job. Women can do demanding jobs. Absolutely. But, I mean, they have to ha- uh, have children, too. I see. Um, uh, okay. I think that one of the arguments why there aren't more women in senior positions is because the pipeline isn't full. And I really don't think that applies in biotech because there are so many women scientists and a lot of women in biotech companies. But I'm just meaning that last rung to being CEO where mm-hmm. the weight of the world is on your shoulders. Um, I think maybe some women are too smart <laughs> to want to do it. To and I was it, dumb yeah. enough to do it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> is that what it was? It was, <laughs> it was a lack of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's go back to the to the company you were with before um, you became the, the angel investor, and that's um, diagnostic Diagnostics firm. for all. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Um, that was a very um, exciting opportunity, and actually caused me to leave the company before. Um, it was based on George Whiteside's technology out of Harvard, and everybody knows about microfluidics for mm-hmm. diagnostics. But as I said at the beginning, I've always been passionate about trying to make um, our clever science affordable to everybody. And this was very attractive to me because um, it used um, a paper device. So the wicking power of paper was basically the power that drove it. So it wasn't this little chip that had to fit into a huge, great machine. It was a postage-sized device. Mm And um, since all you had to do was put some body fluid, blood, urine, sweat, tears onto it and it would wick down the channels, um, it was quite suitable for the developing world. So it seemed to me that if we could solve some of the problems um, in a way that's uh, good enough for the developing world, we'll probably make dynamite products that we can bring back to um, our world as well, because heaven knows we need cheap and easy to use as yeah. well. So I was very taken with it. Um, I I think that uh, it was exciting to me because it was a non-profit and I could see the way to getting good grant funding at a time when raising funds uh, was difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, this was 2009, 10. Actually, I'm a for-profit person. I believe that profit drives sustainability, whether you're doing good works or whatever. Um, So I was attracted to the concept that I could make a really interesting business model as well as take this really interesting technology forward and and did do that um, and had this concept of a um, wholly owned for-profit subsidiary within the non-profit. But um, I was able to assemble a really good team. Well, let's let's talk yeah. about that. So, Diagnostics for All is a nonprofit, yeah. And uh, you somehow spun some technology out that was for profit, and then I think you would reinvest the profits from that into the nonprofit side. Well, no, you have to be extremely careful about the tax laws. So we didn't spin anything out. The basic technology. Uh, we created this subsidiary, mm-hmm. and um, that would allow us to do the kinds of deals that 
small biotechs do with large farmers and with others and you know allow us to have revenue above the 20% mark that a, a non-profit can have as it turned out um, the team that I I assembled and is still largely there intact, we're so good at getting grants that we, in fact, didn't really use that model, and I'm not sure they're continuing with it today. But I'm very fascinated with what you can do with science and technology, but also with what you can do with business. Mm -hmm. I think you can be really creative with it. Yeah, that's, you know, there aren't many nonprofit biotechs, are there? Um, we've been trying to put together an article, basically, that looks at this, and... Um I mean, what are your thoughts, having having run one now, what are your thoughts? Is that a viable option if you're thinking about well, starting up a I company? Well, I think I inherited the fact that it was a nonprofit. I think if I were to do it over, the I would go for profit, but I am never looking for what we think of as farmer margins. Mm -hmm. I think that you need to incent the people here in the U.S., but I think that the way to make these things sustainable and useful is to have profits um, locally, uh, to have um, collaborations locally and allow the locals to make small profits too. And of course, it's difficult to control that. But I, I think um, if I were to start another, I'd start it as a regular C-Corp um, and limit the margins myself, at least while it got going. I was speaking to someone about this, and they mentioned that if you are a nonprofit, often when you're looking to partner or, or make some sort of deal, that, that you know the, the potential partner is more forgiving. Um, they're more willing to do something um, for less revenue from them because they understand it's a nonprofit, and people seem to look fondly on them. Did, was that part of your experience? Um, I think there's no question that people look fondly on them. I think they want the um, you know tax breaks, mm -hmm. and I think they also want the kudos. I think it's very fashionable um, to be doing something uh, charitable as well if you're a great, big, ugly, rich <laughs> farmer or something. So I think there are several things. I didn't I wasn't interested in either of those. I had found over the years that you keep a good workforce by keeping them sort of inspired and energized. And I think doing something that they can relate to, that's useful and meaningful, makes them feel good and want to come to work. So for me, it was more of a, you know, happy workplace tool. Even though that's there's usually a, a lower pay scale in nonprofits than there are for profits. Well, I didn't. To observe that, I ran it like a company, and I think we paid pretty much market rates. So that combined with you know doing something they were interested in. Of course, in you don't get the stock, so no, it seemed yeah, to me yeah. you might as well get paid properly. Yeah, good point. So that uh, leads me to another point: diagnostics. Um, most investors, now that you're an investor, maybe you can tell me, but it doesn't have quite. It's not quite as sexy diagnostics. It's not considered the home run that maybe a therapeutic would be, and it seems like investors have pulled back a little bit from the diagnostic space. Uh, um, yes, I would say it's very sexy. But I would say that as an investor, you have to look at it very carefully because it's a difficult, um, you know, you think it's a shorter regulatory pathway mm -hmm. than things like vaccines, which I was in before, but mm -hmm. it's actually quite treacherous. But lower margins too, yeah? Uh, very low margins. And again, very difficult pricing. If, for example, you have... Um, a diagnostic that's not officially a companion diagnostic in that it wasn't approved with the drug but still enables the 
drug seller mm -hmm. to understand the market and, and identify it, it's very difficult to attach um, the, for the diagnostic company to sort of reap the benefits of that increased marketplace. And I don't really understand why, because with coupons and other forms of advertising, you can do it. But no, they think diagnostics should be cheap and uh, have low margins and do it all with volume. So is there a way to sort of um, spur interest in this field? Um, yes, investors? have something that's unique, have something that, um, you know, uh, is required for a sensible diagnosis of a disease, and sometimes to rule out side effects, negative side effects, so it can be incredibly useful and incredibly valuable. So I don't think there's any point in sort of reinventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. um, there are an awful lot of glucose tests and pregnancy tests, but I do think there are an awful lot of diseases that can't be um, properly diagnosed. And, you know, every day one's finding new sort of personalized quirks to uh, cancer diagnosis. So I think there's a lot more that's valuable that can be done. So are you still in touch with Diagnostics for All? Yes, with some of the people. I'm not on the board or uh, anything. Um, certainly, I mean, they were my friends when yeah. I was there. So, yes, and I've still got lots of friends in Boston. And many from um, Avant too. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we'll get to Avant, but before before Diagnostics for All, it was um, Waltham Technologies. Is that right? Yeah. Which was so your your career sort of has gone from medicine, and then it was clean clean water and energy, and then to diagnostics. It wasn't really so peculiar. Um, in the vaccine company uh, Avant, as it was then, a lot of the vaccines were against bacterial diarrheal disease, and that meant um, growing bacteria a lot. So I was used to the concept, had a plant to uh, manufacture vaccines using live bacteria. Um, and the interesting thing about the clean tech company was I do think water is terribly important. I'm interested in health, agriculture, the environment, mm -hmm. you know, worldwide. I think water is the most precious resource we have. So that attracted me. But the other was it was using blue-green algae, which are really bacteria, not algae. And I thought, well, I understand these things, know how to grow them in bulk. But we never got to that point. The idea was to genetically modify the algae to... Um, clean up wastewater from initially wineries and breweries mm -hmm. and eventually get to ponds and wells in the developing world. But those kinds of dual market models are very difficult because you find you never really get to the developing world, even though your investors and you have the best will in the world. So that's back to what I said at the beginning. I think a straight for-profit model makes sense. Well, Waltham Technologies was for profit. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah. Well, how did you get into that? So so you left Avant for there? Or is there uh, a yes. Between? Well, when Avant merged with Celdex, um, it had been quite clear that the, you know, Rotorix had launched by then, right. and we were very proud of that. But the cholera and typhoid fever were much smaller markets, and we were looking for another sort of vaccine area, and um, cancer vaccines was a challenging area that I was excited by Still is. Uh, because of um, having, you know, before Avant, it was T-cell sciences. So I had quite a bit of experience with the concept of um, 
peptide vaccines. Mm -hmm. So uh, we selected Celdex, and yet um, having done that merger, it was um, more working with antibodies and less with the... They had one vaccine that I was very interested in for glioblastoma, but they were the right group to carry that forward. They had come up with the technology. And, you know, I think... um, there is a time to leave and to do it, you know, gracefully, so to speak. You don't want to um, overstay. And I was actually anxious not to get typecast. I think I would sympathize with actors who don't want to be seen as one thing. I was beginning to be known as a vaccine person, and I, I didn't want to be restricted to that. So that was 14 years at Avant? Yes, at least. Well, it was actually called T-Cell Sciences right. when I joined it. I joined it as the chief scientific officer, ah, which right. was a smart move because I'd come straight out of a Fortune 500 company and from there out of academia. So I didn't really know how to be a startup CEO. So it made sense. But um, the board uh, fairly shortly made me the CEO because I was the one who was really telling the scientific story on Wall Street and getting the excitement of it across. Okay, let's let's talk about that. So the the uh, Fortune 500 company was Monsanto? Monsanto, right? okay. yes, when it was a big company, yeah. not just the seed company. Right, right, right. Um, but so you came, you, you got your degree, I think, from Cambridge. Yes, my undergraduate degree was from Bristol, uh-huh. um, and they uh, ultimately gave me an um, honorary degree too. And then my PhD was from Cambridge. And then how did you get to the U.S.? Um, oh, it's always a man, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I is got it? married to an Englishman who lived in um, Virginia. And actually, I was finishing my Ph.D. there. And then we moved to Miami to the Papa Nicolau Institute. And I became a Howard Hughes investigator, which was... So, but that was for him? No, that was for me. No, no, I mean the move to Miami. The move to him for... The move to Miami was for him. And the Howard Hughes investigatorship was my new right. exciting yeah. career. Um, so I worked at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute um, with all of the intrigue and mystery surrounding Howard Hughes, but it was a very nice, well-funded place. And for some reason, I don't know why, I had the sense to, uh, because I didn't need them, to apply for NIH grants as well. I was sort of on a roll in those days. And that was very good because, again, I wasn't sort of stuck with just Howard Hughes money. I could blossom into um, any area I could write a good grant for. And that was, in many ways, when I think I did some of my most exciting research. Um, But And and was able to localize angiotensin-converting enzyme on endothelium, which led to a whole career on endothelium, the lining of blood vessels. So... I must have published 500 papers and I think 11 books on endothelium uh, before I went uh, yeah. into the industry. But I wasn't really satisfied with academia once I had one tenure and a professorship. It's one of those awful things. You struggle, and then when you've got it, I remember telling my uh, chairman, I've now joined the ranks of people who don't care about tenure because <laughs> I'd been <laughs> such an activist, you know, before, especially for uh, women getting it. Um, 
But I saw myself becoming, uh, getting an endowed chair or a deanship, and it wasn't what I wanted. Um, but, wh- but why not? I mean, did, you, did that sound complacent to you or, or a, no, a boring life? No, I, I wanted, um, I mean, I would have been happy to run um, an endowed institute or something, but uh-huh. I didn't want just a chair. Um, and I did look at, at a couple of chairs at that time, but I I went back to probably the whole reason I got into science and the um, life sciences was when I was five years old, I went to a missionary movie and I saw a movie about a little boy who had uh, leprosy and he was taken away from his village and his friends and his family and it just broke my heart and I thought, well, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to cure all these dread diseases and save lives. And... I'd been so busy in academia writing all those papers and books and seeing that I didn't have my space taken away mm-hmm. um, that I one day looked at a T-shirt that my daughter was wearing. I was pulling out of the laundry, and it said, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? On the and back. I remember thinking, I don't need to be rich, but if I'm so smart, why haven't I cured anybody of anything yet? Um, the work I did in academia actually was very much a basis for the ACE inhibitors, and I actually take one myself uh-huh. now, the Cinepril. But I wanted to get my—I wanted to go from bench to bedside. I wanted to get my hands wet in the development process. I didn't know how to do it at all. I didn't understand manufacturing, launch, any of these things. I wanted to do that, you know, and go the whole way. And I got a call from a headhunter uh, at Russell Reynolds who said, would I be interested in what sounded like a nice position at a Fortune 500 company in the Midwest? And I was thinking through what it could be, and it never entered my head. It might be Monsanto, but it was. And I ran a division there called Health Sciences. And it was when Monsanto corporate research was really for all of the companies pharmaceuticals, chemistry, ag, and um, NutraSweet. Mm-hmm. And we also had something called Fisher, which was a valve company. And, I mean, I was, wasn't really happy in that environment, but it was really good for shaping my lack of fear of some of the bigger business concepts that you see in big companies and you don't learn in startups, um, mergers and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And later I was um, to use that um, technique a lot. Well, I think we did four. I mean, I wasn't dissatisfied or, or searching at all. I'd always turned down any interest in industry because like many... Uh, I was a sort of stuck-up academician who thought, well, you only go there when you lose your grants and mm. you fail, which is rubbish, absolutely, that some of the most exciting research is done in industry. Um, but it was really more this, I've done a good job at the beginning of the equation, but that isn't, I didn't say when I was five years old, I want to be a good researcher. I said, I want to save lives and cure diseases, and I Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Haven't done it. And my husband is a surgeon, and he has people who will write him Christmas cards and say, you saved my life. Right. You know, nobody was going to say that to me, and it, I wanted to do complete the equation. And yeah. that was, I thought, if I'm not going to be a surgeon or a psychiatrist and actually touch my patients, if I can invent something that helps countless millions of people I don't know, that's good enough for me. And but but would you have wanted to be a surgeon? Or that never interested you? Yes, again, when I was very young, I loved doing things with my hands and always did a lot of dissection, fine dissection in my early college years mm-hmm. and I liked that kind of thing and I was an electron microscopist so the sort of minutiae of the inside of the cell and my sort of um, ignored and aborted artistic interests you know I was fascinated by the world inside the cell when it was first to be seen so um, it just it was like everything else it was a question of timing um, it was quite an alien environment for me to go to the Midwest, yeah, to a big company that was very much male-dominated, and I, I in many ways, didn't fit in, but liked not fitting in. And as I said, I learned a lot there, but I didn't really take to the blockbuster mentality. I mean, a few hundred million seemed fine to me. Um, and you're talking about revenue here, yeah. yeah. So I was a very I was uh, very interested to go back to this concept of bench to bedside and uh, started getting offers from largely Boston um, for VC-run companies. But for at Monsanto, you were brought in in a scientific capacity? Oh, yes. Yeah. I was, um, I was um, director, but within uh, Monsanto corporate research, which was all science. So the Monsanto then had five companies, but um, we were supposed to do the research that got funneled into any of these companies, and of course everything I did went towards 
uh, farmer. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the structure of um, big research was interesting and informative to me. And even if you don't really take kindly to something, you learn from it. And I think I did use some of the uh, things I'd learned there later. You know, very structured HR department and how you treat people and mm. how you interview people. Things you don't learn in small companies are actually very useful when you run uh, as your biotech gets bigger. You yeah. find yourself needing those skills. So Monsanto did those things well, HR. So. I thought so, very well. Um, okay, so so Boston starts calling f- for you. And again, they're trying to get you to come in to be a as CSO. As a CEO. Oh, they were. And I had the sense again um, to know that I didn't yet know how to do that. And I like doing things I don't quite know how to do, but not things I have no clue about. Yeah. And I was still very much a scientist at heart. And so I went in as the chief scientific officer to T-cell sciences, which was, as it says, focused on T-cells. It had been founded by um, Patrick Kung, who developed OKT3 mm-hmm. for transplant. And they had some very interesting um, T-cell subset-related technologies, but I always had questions about their usefulness in disease. But what really attracted me uh, about that company was the complement inhibitor program, because I was fascinated with complement as the first step in the body's reaction to something foreign long before you get to inflammation Mm -hmm. and uh, immunology. Um, But again, you really learn from things that don't work well. And we had many setbacks there. Um, We had a very interesting program, I thought, in the vein of OKT3, but now going to... Um, T-cell subsets, not, you know, trying to get to a finer instrument, and was very successful at making an antibody to uh, V-beta 5.2, 5.3. But the one thing that had always worried me a little bit about it um, was that the disease you targeted these tools towards depended on some sort of correlation between the T-cell subset and the disease, but what happens is once you know you've got the disease, you may in fact be looking at T-cells that come in to clean up or are not Mm -hmm. the root cause, and I think that was what happened. We had a partnership with Astra for relapsing, remitting multiple sclerosis, and the antibody worked like a dream. I mean, it inhibited that subset of T-cells for a year or something, but had absolutely no effect on the disease. And to this day, I don't know, but I think it was the correlation, not none of the actual science that was wrong. And the thought of having to, to use them for T-cell lymphomas was too difficult a clinical trial strategy pathway. Um, and I had really always wanted to focus more on the complement inhibitor. Okay, I'm going to back you up. So um, you went in as a CSO. They, they, they recruited oh, you as a yes, CSO. Oh, yes, but I was um, within uh, how two long or three years I uh, was made CEO. Because you were the one who understood the science enough to go pitch it to Wall Street? Yes, because we did. In, um, you know, a pipe was a new structure in those days. And um, 
the current, the then CEO of T-Cell was ex-Bain and a very good consultant, but he wasn't a scientist. And um, I didn't know any better, so I went out to Wall Street and pitched the science like I'd light up the room. You know, I was uh -huh. so excited about it. And um, it was quite successful. And then people remembered me as the one who told the story. So uh, we had a series of disasters in the company, um, a sick building syndrome. and What's that? Oh, um, when everybody gets sick because there's something blowing out of the air ducts or nobody ever knows what it is, but there's wheezing and coughing and rashes, and it's very unpleasant for the people who have it. Um, and at the same time, the registry of motor vehicles in Boston had a similar thing. Anyway, it was an, um, a difficult time for the company, and the board decided to change CEOs. Since then, you've been running companies. Yes. Know? And you started to put in place things like, it sounds like mergers and acquisitions. You learned that yes. at Monsanto, right? Yes. Well, after um, acquiring VRI, we acquired Megan Health in St. Louis because they had some agricultural vaccines, and we wanted the patents that lay behind those. They went very well with the Harvard patents mm -hmm. we had at the time behind cholera. These were behind typhoid. Um, and then um, it was important at that time, I thought, to have single-dose oral vaccines, but also to try to make them temperature stable. You know, I'm always yeah. on this kick of making things yeah. uh, useful everywhere. And so we bought the patents from a Russian physicist for, um, we thought, making temperature-stable vaccines. I'm not sure the um, process was ever fully developed. And it's interesting that vaccine development is so long and so arduous that nobody wants to go back and have to have it, um, you know, uh, redeveloped, take it back to the FDA. So... I don't know if that technology is being used at the moment, mm. but it was quite clever. It used um, sugars and the glass transition temperature of the sugars, so you could do different mixes of sugars. Uh, okay, so then you have your rotavirus vaccine. It's approved. It's your big success story. Yes. Um, and it go? was very interesting to me because um, it allowed us, again, to do some quite interesting sort of business moves. We monetized the royalty stream, mm -hmm. so that actually brought some of the revenue up front. It's not at the, the full power. Um, and it's a very successful vaccine. I mean, at the time, we were all saying this is going to save 600,000 um, children's lives. But actually, the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal, the New England Journal, um, did a very nice article some years later showing it was actually saving two million lives. And um, so I think when you don't have severe diarrheal disease, you're better able to fight some of these other infections. And um, Well, how that, I mean, personally, that must have felt great for you. I mean, this is one of your wonderful. goals. It was wonderful. And having said I didn't like blockbusters, I think it's one of the vaccine blockbusters. Yes. But, of course, um, much of the launch and the burden of those really onerous phase threes was borne by GSK Bio. Mm -hmm. And uh, they actually engineered the final strain that's used in the, the vaccine. But it was, was wonderful. And even before it was approved, when the trials, you know, we had to show a statistical significance um, 
ruling out this intersusception, this very, very rare side effect. And nobody knew what the basal rate of that was. But, you know, at times I used to despair that it was ever going to get to market. But there was a time when Merck was developing theirs as well as GSK. And I think every second child in Finland was receiving uh, rotavirus vaccine from a trial. And I thought, we're saving lives anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. So it was very rewarding. And uh, so after after the approval, is that when you started to think, okay, well, maybe it's time I do something else? Yeah. Yes, because a lot of the um, sort of acquisition um, interest was around that royalty stream. And... Um, I was personally very interested in a single-dose oral cholera vaccine and the same for a whole range of uh, very bad diarrheal diseases. But it was clear, I mean, they aren't huge markets. Um, uh, Traveler's vaccines, you know, are not reimbursed, but they get good prices, but it's still not a huge market. So that was when we started looking around, and I think I told you um, a cancer vaccine company Mm -hmm. looked like what we wanted, and we looked at several. Um, so another thing I wanted to talk to you about, while you were in Massachusetts, you were a big proponent for building up the sector there, yeah? And you were on the board for bio, I think, for emerging companies? Yes. So I was on the bio board and um, mass bio board, right. which was very, very good because it stopped the, any sort of rivalry between the two. But I think the thing I fought hardest for and was perhaps also very rewarding was streamlined permitting because it had been very difficult to build a manufacturing plant in Massachusetts. I mean, you saw Genzyme and Biogen go elsewhere. Um, North Carolina and... So this is is new to me. What is that streamlined permitting? Massachusetts has this old law where each of the townships has their own ability to do permitting, and they take their time. And people did not build plants or build buildings or big dormitories um, in Massachusetts uh, because you had to deal with each place you you were in. And um, we managed to get this uh, streamlined permitting through. And I think it wasn't just us. I think it was the pressure from the other states like Texas and North Carolina and many places where were coming in, um, governors coming in on planes, luring um, biotech CEOs to look at their states. And honestly, to look at a pre-permitted site Mm -hmm. with a much lower rental, it was tempting. And I think Massachusetts realized and uh, did the right thing. Small companies today. You being on Bio's board for emerging companies, what can we sort of do today to foster biotech growth? whether it's in San Francisco or Massachusetts or anyplace else? Well, I mean, I've seen several dry cycles um, in biotech and um, on on the bio board or just observing. And I think things are not the same as they were. So I think people can't expect to raise money the same ways that we used to uh, raise money 5, 10, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. But doesn't mean you can't raise money. So VCs um, are having a, a tough time. Some of them are doing very well, but they're, they're having difficulty, and they're pretty risk-averse in general and not interested in early stage. But the angels are growing, and they're banding together, um, 
and forming quite nice syndicates. And uh, I think Golden Seeds has 250 members. And um, I think that in many ways, the way funding is coming is different and people need to recognize that. Um, I think there are the disease groups who fund research and sometimes trials. I think there's crowdfunding. I'm not a huge um, proponent of having the crowd in your stock, but I, I think that having the crowd fund your manufacturing process sort of in advance and some other things or particular projects you have is, is very wise and it's working. And I've got, um, I'm advising people who have crowdfunding charitable platforms and crowdfunding, you know, regular um, investments. I think there's a lot of um, new ways to get funding. And frankly, I'm seeing just as many exciting companies coming forward. It may be tougher to sort of get to the head of the pack, but I, I don't think innovation's drying up at all. But after these small companies have been through you and they've gotten their, their angel funding or their seed funding, you know, what are their chances of actually getting the A round that they need or the B round that they need? Well, I mean, the good angel groups are closely affiliated with um, VCs near them. I mean, there's no question that the Angel Forum um, uh, in the Bay Area is very closely aligned with corporate strategic partners and with VCs. So sometimes it's the VCs who actually say, this is too small for us. Uh, why don't you take a look at it? So, you know, there's very good synergy there. Um, I There are several corporate partners on that um, angel group and on several of them, I think. So I think people are realizing it's going to require new alliances and new mechanisms. But there really is money for, and there really is um, quite a plethora of good ideas. So I'm not as depressed about it. I think you just have to be very nimble. And that was why, in some ways, I enjoyed running a nonprofit for a while, because you can bring in, you know, A-round-sized grants. And uh, again, one agency will dry up and another, you know, pops up. So it's a question of... of um, keeping up with the times, I think. Uh, I wanted to ask you, I, this was when I was doing my research. I'm going to forget the, um, yeah, you were, you were awarded the Order of the, of the British Empire in 2002, and that was from the Queen. Yes. And what was you, that like? Are you down on your knees bowing to me? <laughs> it should be. Oh, it was so exciting. Of all the awards I've won, it was quite, uh, I was going to say the crowning glory. Um, you go to Buckingham Palace. Uh -huh. And you actually receive it in the throne room, which I think is sort of something like seven double-decker buses high. And the Gurkha band is playing and everybody's in uniform and they've got spurs on and I was wearing a hat. And it's very exciting. And you were taken into one of the Buckingham Palace private uh, areas um, to be rehearsed. And... Um, I actually was, I received mine from Prince Charles because the Queen had hurt her knee or something that day. Um, I was in the same round as Mick Jagger. Oh, and, really? Um, he wasn't there on, on my day. Um, oh, the same round, but okay. But it's really an honor, and it's very special. Of course, now I have this P 
skin and never have a chance really to wear it because you have to wear the big thing for um, sort of royal occasions. Mm -hmm. But I have a miniature that you can wear on Armistice Day and so did they? Like I, I mean, I'm wondering if they put the sword on your shoulder. Yes, they, they did. They oh did. man, that's oh, great. Yes. And they they hook it on you. They don't they don't fumble with your lapel. So a hook is placed before, and then the monarch just. Ah, uh, so that. it just is really easy. And yeah. you have to curtsy and walk backwards after. out of the room. Well, not the whole way, but, but I had pretty high heels on. It was hazardous. Did you practice? <laughs> Yes, yeah. but only just, you know, like in the half hour before. Yeah, yeah not for weeks yes. in advance. Um, so I, I, we did a profile on you back in, I think, 2006. And in the beginning of the article, it was talking about, um, like, your early years were somewhat dramatic. Like, you left Singapore in, your, in, a, in a ship that was torpedoed or something? Absolutely. Um, you know, when people introduce you, they always give you rewards and things. But I really think it's the bad things that shape you and drive you um, wherever it is you're going to go. I was born in an air raid shelter under Bangsa Hospital in Kuala Lumpur as the Japanese were coming down the peninsula. And um, my mother and I were driven to the docks in Singapore, which is quite a way. And when we got there, my mother um, was pushed onto the ship that... that driven by who? I mean, the... My father's driver. Oh, okay. My father was a rubber planter. And um, my carry cot was put through a window to get me on, on board. And when my mother turned around to look for my father, she couldn't see him. So he was captured and then turned. But it was, I mean, that close to not making it out yeah. of there. But as, if that wasn't, and of course I was a baby. I don't remember this, but I've been told. Um, and then... Um, that was the last ship to leave Singapore Harbour, and it did get torpedoed. And my father heard that um, the ship was lost and no survivors, which wasn't true at all. It got damaged. Actually, later became a troop training ship, so they even rehabilitated the ship. Um, my mother and I got off in lifeboats, but we took 18 months getting bombed, torpedoed, <laughs> um, and she was breastfeeding me all this while, and we lived in refugee camps. And but where? I mean, when you oh, got off the lifeboats, India where did you go? India and South Africa. We in what was then Ceylon. I mean, any place that you got could get to shore, and there was somebody who'd take you in. Hmm. Um, and my mother had uh, come from a, a, a very good family, and she was totally inexperienced. She didn't speak English very well. And um, she had sewn her jewelry in the hem of her coat. And she used that to buy milk for me all across the world till we got to London. And when we got to England, that jade ring that I wear all the time now was the last piece of jewelry. So it's very precious to me. That's an incredible it's, story. It's, it's imperial jade. And then when we got to England, my mother said proudly, I have to go to Mary in Oxford, because that was the last thing she had remembered my father saying, and Mary was his older sister, but it's also the commonest name in England. <laughs> <laughs> How they ever found my Aunt Mary in Oxford, I you don't mean, know. You mean when she landed, that's what she told immigration, I have to go yes, to Mary they in said, Oxford. where do you want to be billeted uh. or whatever? You know, it was a big line of and volunteers. And then I had this idyllic childhood in Oxford um, with 
Tolkien down the road and C.S. Lewis uh-huh. and all the great ladies of Oxford. Um, and then one day I was taken out of my little Montessori school to go meet my father at the railway station. And I said, oh, no, my daddy died in the war. Um, and I remember this bit, I remember uh, saying, um, I have a picture of him on the mantelpiece because that sort of proved he was dead somehow. <laughs> and uh, when we got there, I ran right up to him and my mother didn't recognize him and my aunt his sister didn't recognize him because he'd been starved and tortured for five years, but I somehow did, and I you, had. You mean what? You on a platform or something? You just yeah, saw him. I and just ran. ran there was a band of soldiers got off a train, looking pretty dejected. Yeah. He was in terrible shape, and um, I just—I don't know—I just ran right up to him. Sounds I like a movie. Tell you. Yes. Yeah. Um, And, of course, then um, I escaped the Blitz in London, but England was always being bombed. And I think that's where I became very thoughtful of other people. I saw a lot of displaced people, displaced children, and my aunt was very philanthropic. She did a lot of war work, but she would go and sit with an old lady on the street who was terrified of thunder because of the Blitz. Mm -hmm. And I remember even later when I would... I was little coming home from from uh, school if my aunt wasn't home and I could see a storm was coming I'd rush across the street to sit with old Miss Fletcher because I knew you know that she, she needed her, yeah. it and um, it it I think it was very good I think when you're a little child you're often very selfish and I think um it was good for me to have to think about other people and their misfortunes. And, you know, I'd, I'd nearly lost my own life two or three times, and my father was just a miracle. He came home. And so I've always had a very clear sense of life's precious and worth living to the full. So that's how you think those things shape you. Oh, I you. think those yeah. things shape you for enormously. For caring other people. The one, the, 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 you know, amazing moment was the little boy at the movie but I think I had always um, been like that, actually. Anything that you want to, that maybe I missed that you want to talk about? or No, I just would, would say to you um, that I think the industry is in much better shape. I hear a lot of woe and um, yeah, it's the money. misery. Yeah, everybody's um, worried the, about the money. Yes, but there, I mean, that's what you have to find, but it's not that it's not there. Except for look harder. Listen, I know this wasn't easy for you. You have a full day. Oh, that was Completely great. appreciate the time. Thank you. I, it was great. I wanted to do it from day one. So well, I'm glad it worked. That's our First Rounders podcast with Una Ryan. She made quite an effort to fit us into her schedule, so I'd like to thank her for her time. I'd also like to thank the Midwest Quiet for use of their music, and I'd like to thank you for listening. For Nature Biotechnology, I'm Brady Huggett.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.